there are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, good afternoon. I should say good morning. Oh, my. Yes, indeed. Good morning to you. Wolfgang Klein here, host of Hi-Fi Radio. Of course, it is a show about high finance. And we'll weave in a little high fidelity just to have some fun with the show. Uh, 2019 is ripping and roaring uh, straight up. And I'll tell you, uh, bespoke uh, investment research that Jack and I subscribe to uh, has, has laid the foundation with some very interesting facts. And the facts were, in 2018, the market would open strong and close weak. In 2019, the market is opening a little tepid and closing strong. Uh, the difference, of course, is in 2018, when the market was open, the sellers would sell. In 2019, when the market is open and the, mar- uh, the, the buyers are buying. Uh, so, to make sense of it all, of course, joined with my dear friend, Don Avilo. Uh, Don, welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio. Thanks for having me back. Yes, Don, of course, is a uh, market technician uh, working on a number of different sites, timingthemarket.ca, equityclock.com, and stocktwits.com at equityclock. Uh, Don really is a technician, and he overlays his work with seasonal investing. Uh, You know, buy when it snows, sell when it goes, and the snow is still here, my good friend, so I guess we can remain along. So, Don, um, I'm going to start with, uh, the last time we had you on, we spoke about uh, the bear market rally. You're calling it that. I'm I'm, I'm not, okay? That's your your phrase, bear market rally. I'm just calling it an equity rally. Um, So, uh, we were speaking about potential retest of the lows that we saw on December 24th. are you still in the camp that the market is going to come right back down imminently and within the next few weeks, months, back to those lows, scare the bejeebies out of everybody, and then go rip-roaring higher? Or does the market go to new highs from here? Yeah, I qualify slightly. There are certain markets which will continue to do very well uh, outside of North America. Uh, for example, China, Vietnam, some of the other emerging markets are expected to do very well as we get into 2019. Yeah. In the case of North America, yeah. the Canadian market is expected to significantly outperform the U.S. market. Which it is so far. That's right. And uh, the U.S. market's got a problem. Uh, it's, it's called potential impeachment. It's called a slowdown in earnings. There's lots of uh, things which could have an impact on U.S. markets, which will not have an impact on other equity markets. Let me interrupt you a bit there, Don, if I may, because number one, market breadth. And what that means is number of companies participating in the upside is expanding. In 2018, it was the FANG stocks that was driving the market. They were saying breadth was somewhat questionable, but breadth has been very, very healthy. In terms of valuations, the, the U.S. market is the most expensive in the world, but always is the most expensive in the world. But trading at, what, 15 times earnings, uh, with, with earnings growth forecasted to be 7%, nothing to sneeze at. And if, if, if earnings go up 7%, Don, the market should rise by at least 7%, perhaps plus dividend. I, I like what you had to say at the very beginning about the possibility of markets uh, later into 2019 doing very, very well, because it fits into that scenario where growth in earnings of S&P 500 companies will be quite significant in the latter part of 2019. But a word of caution, the consensus estimate for 
uh, first quarter earnings for the S&P 500 companies is for a drop of 1.7%. I caught that. That's, I say that, right. that's actually a good thing, though. They're setting expectations very low with yep. the potential to, to be, right? Last year, 2018, we saw expectations for synchronized growth and we saw uh, earnings expectations for growth north of 20%. It all came true. The problem was that uh, the valuations uh, ha- had already priced that into the market. Indeed. By the way, we are on, on the line here with my dear friend, Don Velo, a very seasoned seasonal investor. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, Don, sorry, when did you begin your career on Bay Street? 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, so surviving the market 50 years. <laughs> That's no mean feat. Um, so, so, Don, you mentioned just at the beginning of the, the show there, uh, China, Vietnam, uh, overseas markets doing uh, exceptionally well uh, this year with the expectation for that to continue. So are you seeing a deal with China uh, on March the 1st with, uh, with Trump and China? It'll be complicated, but there likely is going to be a, a trade deal on uh, a number of items. That's important because both the U.S. and China have a big uh, reason to make a deal. Uh, so that's going to help uh, particularly the uh, Far East markets. And it probably will help the U.S. markets a little bit in the short term because that's a short-term uh, announcement expected to come within the next uh, two weeks. However, after that, uh, U.S. markets do have some concerns. The key is that you can play the uh, these changes in market trends, uh, say Far East versus U.S., in a very interesting way, and that has to do with uh, the way that China is going to uh, show growth. That is, they're going to be buying a lot of commodities, things like copper and zinc and and lumber and all kinds of uh, uh, grains and things like that. That's going to be very, very positive for the commodity sector in uh, North American equities during the next little while. Well, yeah, look, I the, say that the market's definitely pricing in a, a deal, I would say, right now. So hopefully it comes through uh, March 1st or thereafter, because if it doesn't, I think there'll be a, quite a shock to, to the markets. Yeah, Don, is it this Chinese story? And we're going to come back to you, Don Vila, after break here. But uh, prior to, I want to ask you a question here. Uh, do you think it's going to be a buy and rumor, sell the news? In other words, a China deal gets done. Is that a sell? Will that be a sell the news event? Because I'm hearing a lot of debate about that, or, or rising debate about that. I'm curious what your opinion it, is. It won't. It won't be a final resolution to all the problems that they have with China and the U.S. But hopefully, it doesn't get any worse. I think. I think maybe baby steps in the right direction. Yeah. It's, it's going to yeah. be a drawn out, which process, would be enough. Which would be enough to not have the sell. What do you think, Don? Will it be sell on news, or will it be maintain course, maintain momentum, trend continues higher. Well, I'm looking at something else. I'm looking at the seasonality of the Chinese market. And historically, the best time to own the Chinese market is uh, right after the Chinese New Year, which was last week. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Chinese market moves higher right through until approximately the end of May. And it's following that pattern very nicely this year as well. The Chinese market didn't really uh, uh, wake up until about two weeks ago. You know what surprised me about you, Donning, and we are going to go to commercial. I'll tell you what surprised me about you is you've been in this business for 50 years, um, yet you, you speak of, of investing uh, of, of months, uh, which is such short term in the grand scheme of things. And I've thought a bit of Warren Buffett would have worn off on you over time, but that's okay. That's who you are. That's why I respect you. You know, Seasonal investing is what you like. It's what you believe in. Uh, I understand it's all about the probabilities. Uh, I can share with you another factoid with you uh, uh, when we get back uh, to Hi-Fi Radio. Let's pay some bills and get right back with Don Velo, market technician, uh, great author, timingthemarket.ca, equityclock.com, stocktweets.com. Uh, he is Tech Talk. More of them right after this. <laughs> 
Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show of money, Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. Jack Hartle, co-host of the show, and we're joined with a good friend of mine, a man who has worked on Bay Street for 50 years. I don't know too many people who have worked for 50 years, but Don has. He's so passionate about the markets. I get so excited. His eyes light up when you're talking about anything technical. Um, Don, I'm going to give you something very, I'm going to give you a piece of minutia that's actually very important. Um, and again, going through Bespoke's work, People don't understand this, but I'm going to try to explain to them. When the market closes, say Toronto closed at 16,000, and then it reopens the next day, it does not have to open at 16,000. It can open below or above. Bespoke indicates that a good chunk of the S&P 500's return has occurred after market hours, i.e., S&P closed at 1,500 on Thursday and it opens at 1,510 Friday morning at 9.30, which means if you didn't stay long overnight, you lost 10 points. And in aggregate over a long period of time, that could actually be over half of the return. The other point I want to make about Bespoke is very interesting, is it shows the, the, the days in terms of how the market is performing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And again, bull market, bear market, it's very different pattern. But what you have right now is you have a lot of strength on Tuesday, further strength on Wednesday, weakness on Thursday, which is ironic because I feel this weakness every Thursday. And then Friday tends to be a bit of a, a weekday. So if you want to actually play a game, which I wouldn't do, you could in fact buy Friday when it's weak, sell Wednesday. I bet you'll perform in 2019. But that's not it, what we're all about here at High Five. It, it does really show you about the uh, market participants and their psychology, right? People sell on Fridays because they don't want to hold stocks over the weekend because right. of the news. And you talk about the gaps in the market. There yes. can be potential big gaps. So mind the gap and people are... Selling on Fridays, concerned what happens on Monday. Things are okay on Mondays. They, they actually buy a little bit, but then the buying picks up on Tuesday, Wednesday. We always call it turnaround Tuesdays, right? Correct. And again, I, I repeat, when the market opens up, especially on a Monday, my good friends, be careful. Be suspect of a strong open on a Monday. Be excited if it's weak. In other words, if the market opens up strong, I have a sense that the big money institutions are trying to feed you. They're trying to raise the level of the market, feed you stock, and as such, you see the stock start to fade. When you see strength at the end of the day, get excited. That's what we're seeing in 2019. Because that's where the big money plays. That's the big the money big... plays at the end of the day, not on the opens. So, so Don, again, I, I want to talk commodities with you, but prior to that, I want you to respond to what Jack and I were just talking about in terms of the daily participation of 2019 versus 2018 with your 50 years of wisdom. Yeah, these the short-term uh, uh, events, like on a daily basis, uh, are, are very interesting and can be helpful when, when you're doing your, your short-term trading. Probably doesn't apply as much for what I call swing traders or longer-term investors. But yeah, they should be aware of these uh, these conditions, like uh, the Tuesday being turnaround day. That kind of thing is is useful if you're reaching, uh, say, a point where you want to complete a transaction. Yeah, again, what I find most useful about that that little dialogue Jack and I just had was the activity in 2018 was bearish. And the activity in 2019 so far is very, very bullish, which means I'll tell you, Don, the next thing that I think people are going to be working on in their minds is the old get even itis. Um, 
they have this high watermark in their minds in terms of what their accounts were at. They're getting close to that number. And I think when they get to that number, you're going to see some selling on it. But let's put that to the sideline because what we are seeing is Toronto's definitely outperforming. Uh, at the start of the year, there was talk of emerging markets outperforming. I don't think they are outperforming. I think consensus got that one wrong. But definitely we're seeing strength in, in the commodity landscape almost universally. I, lumber stocks are having a tough go, Don. I think that's the one caveat. Jack and I don't have, we have a bit of lumber stock with Canwell. But uh, we own the PEC, which is an ETF for the base metal index. It looks really good. You said that you mentioned the CRB index uh, is, is pointing higher. So, so speak to that because I think Canada in many ways is an emerging market. I don't want to play China. I think if China performs, Canada is going to perform. Don, please speak to that. Yeah, Canada is a um, uh, commodity-oriented economy and uh, therefore particularly the commodity-oriented stocks will do very, very well here in Canada. Uh, we're starting to see uh, the commodity prices move higher in anticipation of uh, good news in the trade relationships between China and the uh, United States. Yep. Just on Wednesday, we completed a beautiful reverse head and shoulders pattern for the CRB index. Earlier uh, uh, last week, we had a, a reverse head and shoulders pattern for uh, crude oil, and we had a double bottom pattern completed for copper. All these commodities, which are industrial-oriented, are starting to move higher, with the exception of lumber. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like if you want to be in, invested in Canada, look at some of these uh, commodity-oriented stocks and ETFs as well. It's, it's interesting because, again, Toronto is a couple of percent from its old all-time high. Uh, the S&P is in a similar situation. Uh, stick on the commodity landscape, if I may, Don. How much of the strength have we seen recently can be attributed to the weakness in the U.S. dollar? Because, again, all commodities are priced in U.S. dollars. Commodity goes down. Excuse me. When the U.S. dollar goes down, commodity prices invariably go up because producers abroad need to be uh, paid in, uh, in local currency. So when they convert, uh, it has to uh, uh, be net neutral or prices go higher. Very important. The U.S. Uh, dollar index peaked out in the first week in December, and it's been going flat to slightly lower since that time. And uh, it looks like the trend has changed. Previously, the U.S. dollar index was going higher. Now it's not doing that anymore. And as it goes flat to slightly lower, commodity prices in general move higher. Yeah. Well, if you're going to go to Florida, my good friends, you have a chance to convert with maybe a 77-cent loony. Woo, it's going to be exciting. Uh, we, we spoke with Don Velo. Don, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. It always is. Don Velo, again, a man of 50 years of experience. He's a market technician. He pays attention to the seasonal uh, nuances of the market. Uh, and we're in the middle of seasonal strength, so Don gets excited. You know, you're those reverse head and shoulder bottoms. His eyes were lighting up. Uh, it's a real pleasure, my good friend. Uh, coming up next, we are going to speak really high tech. We're going to talk about autonomous driving. We're talking about electrification. And uh, Jed Dorsheimer, uh, our analyst, believes by 2030, 50% of new vehicles sold will be electric. That's in 11 years. 50% of new vehicles sold uh, will be electric. So let's chat with uh, Jed uh, and see what is going through his big gray matter on Hi-Fi Radio right after this. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. He was born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him, you might say he was born again. 
Yes, indeed. A little Johnny Denver. I love that song. You know, Jack, my kids are listening to way too much hip-hop. It's killing me. It is so... Ki- no, the, the lyrics are off the charts. They're so rude. They're so, so, so much profanity. You know, back in the day, we'd buy a piece of plastic, and it would say parental guidance or prevent right yeah, yeah. What are the there'd be warnings on it parental, for sure yeah, they, yeah they, no no but so so elliot my my youngest who's listening to this stuff as well so it's herd mentality uh he will he will then pivot and play some john denver for himself oh yeah i kid you not well uh, i was doing with my kids i play classic rock right now just because it's the music i can control with them so yeah. that they actually don't choose their own music yeah, yeah. so hopefully i instill that in them we'll see what they what they're listening to when they're 15 K- 60 kids all start listening to class my kids started listening to classic rock then they got into a band called the sheepdogs oh That's, yeah isn't that britney's that a canadian band the sheepdogs Britney's not sure. Uh, Britney's a big fan, of course, of uh, Arcade Fire from Montreal. Anyways, uh, yes, we gave you some John Denver for our next guest. Um, Jed Dorsheimer, analyst, Canaccord Genuity, uh, senior analyst, as a matter of fact, uh, compound semiconductors, device physics, too much mumbo jumbo. Uh, The man's got color, and I want to introduce the man through his color. Uh, What caught my attention about Jeb beyond driverless cars, and he's an analyst for Tesla, uh, he he first of all thinks by 2030, in 11 years, there's going to be 50% of new vehicles sold are going to be electric. You're right. Uh, We're going to talk about that. But the guy's a skier, uh, and he left for his new home in the mountains, and he found love uh, with himself and uh, with with the sport of skiing. So, Jed, please share with us your skiing story and how that led you into the world of automotive and autonomous driving. Because it's a beautiful story, and uh, you know it's February, it's ski season. So let's talk. Let's talk a little bon ski, my friend. <laughs> sure. So, uh, you know, like most things in life, I guess it does come full circle. Um, <clears throat> my uh, my ski career, you know. I, I usually tidy it up in a in a neater package when I'm uh, uh, in, in uh, events like this. But uh, the truth of the matter is, um, I had grown up racing all my life, skiing gates, and uh, and got burned out uh, of that. And um, yeah, I uh, bought a one way plane ticket to Jackson Hole, and uh, and then kind of reignited. Uh, my um, passion and love for skiing. Uh, so, how old were you when you uh, took that one way? Took that one way ticket. Eighteen. You're eighteen years old. I see. Well, the people did in Canada was they'd do the Banff thing. They'd fly out west to Banff yeah. and hang out with the Aussies and the uh, yeah, lots of Aussies out there. But anyways, carry on. Then I came back uh, east coast uh, and was teaching skiing for Sunday River, uh, and um, and I actually got uh, uh, I got suspended because I was teaching uh, kids um, how to do helicopters and ski bumps, and their parents complained. No, and, no, no uh, mech twists, none of that stuff, but basic helicopters, eh? Just a helicopter, you know? <laughs> and uh, that's what I said, too. Yeah. You know? I was like, it's no big deal. And uh, and teaching them how to do it safely, too. But and anyway, again, what year was this? This was 92. Yeah, see, again, that's before the half pipe, wasn't it? That's before. Yeah. It's incredible because when I used to ski, again, I'm, I'm 10 years older than you, uh, you could not have a bump on a hill. Any kid building a ramp, they, the ski patrol would knock it down immediately. And I would love, as a kid, you want to fly. Um, and you don't want to do that in the stock market. Do it on the hill, not on the stock market, because that's where you get hurt. See, it's, the parallels in business are incredible. Anyways, uh, carry on, my good friends. So you, you got fired for teaching kids helicopters. Yes. They uh, put me in with the, um, uh, at the time it was kind of the, the freaks, the freestyle team. And yep. So I, uh, 
and it was uh, it was like a relief, a breath of fresh air. Like I felt at home with uh, with these other guys. And, uh, um, and, and the I aerial well. skiing, no, the aerial skiing, the bump skiing really began to take off just when you were there, didn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it was kind of pioneered in the late '80s, um, but it was a you know there were there it was all hot dogging. You know, it wasn't a lot of. Uh, hey man, that's my hot dog baby. That's exactly. my generation, man. And so Little one of neon. the things that benefited Woo. me and allowed me to rise in the ranks relatively quickly was um, was that racing background, how to learn, how, you know, knowing how to use your edges, et cetera. And uh, so I got recruited out um, by the uh, Snowbird Freestyle Ski Team. and uh, in, in, in the United States, of course. Yep. yep. And, uh, so I moved out to Utah, lived out there, and, uh, and I competed. And, uh, you know, the mountains are a lot steeper. Uh, you get more snowpack. Um, but the uh, the skills were all developed on the East Coast, uh, on the hard ice. Yeah, yeah, right? some of the best skiers in Canada, man, come from the East. They can ski the ice. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think you guys, you had, uh, this was time Jean-Luc Broussard was one of the, you know, pioneers. I, yeah, I get him mixed up with Jean-Luc Picard, believe it or not. What's that? <laughs> I get him mixed up with Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> well, I can see why. <laughs> So anyway, so so, uh, so you so skied. Yeah, you're your competitive fun. skier. Uh, you did the teaching thing. Uh, then what? So then I had a, a career-ending injury at, uh, that I got airlifted off a of snowbird. Uh, I uh, I had a great run. Fell off my second air. Shattered seven ribs. Punctured a lung. And I thought I. Uh, my I told sleep. you, Jack. It's brutal that sport. Oh, what these guys so, do! Wow, uh, you pushed yourself, eh? So yeah, go big or go home. And uh, <clears throat> so I ended up uh, going home. So I came back to the East Coast, uh, literally. A one-way broken, ticket home. Broken, broken, and uh, I needed to get a job uh, quickly to kind of pay for the bills that I racked up. And uh, my friend's family no owned, Obamacare, a, eh? owned a series of car dealerships. Yeah. So um, I got a job in, uh, and learned how to sell cars, uh, which was great. I mean, everybody in the world should kind of go through that process, in my opinion. Because close early, close often, pal. Let me uh, speak to the sales manager. To, hey, yeah, let me let me hear you say that line. We got to speak to the sales manager. Oh well, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <A-A-B-C. laughs> hey, Jed, look, dude. Um, you you get. It. I got to pay some. We got to run some commercials around here to keep uh, terrestrial keep radio on. on uh, keep the lights on. But uh, Jed Dorsheimer, they, they, it's a great story that he's leading into. Uh, it, He's all over electric cars. He's all over um, propulsion and the environment uh, and the future of driving and autonomous driving. So, again, he worked at a car dealer from skiing to driving. He's changed careers. He's dynamic. He's energetic. He's gutsy. Uh, and he's very entertaining as well. Uh, Jed Dorshammer, Analyst Canada, Corginuity. More of them on Hi-Fi Radio right after this. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show about money. It is Hi-Fi Radio, and I am Wolfgang Klein, your host, also portfolio manager. Yes, I manage a bunch of money for some very friendly Canadians, and if you're ever looking for change, you can always call Jack or I easily found. Just Google us. Uh, yes, indeed, the old verb, eh, of Google. Um, Jed Dorsheimer, uh, also a race car driver. <laughs> Formula 3, apparently. Um, 
we got so much to talk to Jed about, uh, so much color, and yet so many facts I want to cover off with the man. Anyway, so Jed, you, uh, you're, at, you're, you're working at a car, you go from skiing to car dealership, you learned how to close, you learned how to probe, um, you obviously did well, but that wasn't enough for you, you understood, you, you learned about cars at the dealership level, then what happened to you? So I, uh, it was how I paid for my college, so, uh, so paid for my undergrad, so I came out of undergrad without any, uh, any debt, which, uh, That's good. Uh, which was nice, yep. and uh, it also allowed me to build my first business. So I built a business in uh, uh, subprime uh, auto lending. Subprime, you said? You the subprime? You caused the subprime crises? <laughs> hey, have you fuel <laughs> for that well subprimer? That. But huh? this is this is with uh, the Aon Cor- Aon Corporation reinsurance, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, AIG uh, didn't mention just like that name, man. Got to learn all <laughs> that whole end of the business and. Uh, Wow. And then transitioned to Wall Street at a little brokerage uh, house called Adams Harkness and Hill, oh. which um, Canaccord Genuity acquired in uh, 2006 or seven uh, mm. in that time frame. Yep. Oh. And I was in the research side and uh, ended up um, going back to school at night for my master's in electrical engineering and taking coursework at uh, Harvard's Extension School, so they had a six-month program for analog circuit design, and the second six months was digital circuit design, which I absolutely fell in love with. And uh, and then... Um, <laughs> oh, my, about- digital circuit design, so, so from bumps to circuit boards. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Well, huh? Before my skiing, I had always uh, been proficient in, you know, I learned how to program computers in the third grade on an Atari 400. And so, uh, so that really, you know, the technology is always, um, piqued my interest. Yeah, I'll, I'll my, be uh, in Pong any day, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take you, I'll take you <laughs> up on that challenge. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So anyways, I, uh, I came in and, uh, and that's how I, uh, found and carved a niche in uh, handsets and LEDs, which was really the, the first big run that, uh, that put me on the Wall Street map. Um, Sorry, I, handsets? Yeah, I came up with this idea that uh, the telco bubble, which had burst in 2002, that um, color screens would drive uh, 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 content growth for um, uh, telcos. And uh, through the handsets, and and that uh, multimedia would um, improve the ARPU average revenue per user, uh, and um, that was uh, my first big call on uh, Wall Street. And then uh, noticed that the LEDs were the the critical technology that enabled all of that, and uh, dug deep in that where the material science kind of came in. And that was, uh, we published a white paper in uh, basically 2007, 2008. So when everyone thought the world was ending, we said, no, you got to buy everything LED related. And that led to a 440% return over the next four years, um, several white papers and, you know, uh, a great run. you got Jed Dorsheimer, by the way, on the air. He's, a, he's an analyst with Canaccord. Uh, looks at real some, some, some futuristic uh, type technology. He is looking massively forward and, of course, focusing on uh, electric propulsion systems. Uh, so it is. I say, Jed, you had a, a, a significant white paper back uh, with LED, and Wolfgang and I were just going through uh, your electrification of uh, autos. Um, and like Wolf said at the beginning of the show, you're talking about 50% of new vehicles sold uh, will be electric by 2030. That's, that's pretty, years, that's pretty bold Why? call. That, so can, can, huge... you, um, yeah, can you walk us through that? Uh... Sure. So um, 
first, I'd, I'd point out, as we do in the white paper, that um, you know we're kind of coming full circle. Uh, electric actually uh, predated that of the internal combustion engine. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are aware. I, I, no, Jed, back up. In your report, you said the first battery perhaps was created 20 before Christ? So the first battery uh, that I'm aware of uh, that uh, takes us back well over 300 years. Um, although it was, you know, it wouldn't look like a Duracell or uh, or something. It would just be a pile of uh, uh, um, salt that basically would contain energy. Um, so very different. But a yeah, pile of salt. Yeah, battery technology has existed for a uh, long period of time. Okay, here's what we're going to do, Jed. Um, we're going to talk about the history of the battery. I also want to talk to you about the history of the automobile, I guess the automobile, the history of it, because uh, it's interesting. It's a fascinating history, and, and the facts and the market share change uh, from combustible versus steam. Uh, but again, Jed, you know what we got to do? we got to pay more bills around here. So let us do that. Uh, go to a quick commercial break. Get right back with uh, a brilliant analyst at Canaccord. His name is Jed Dorsheimer. By the way, if you want a copy of his white page report on sustainable sustainability, energy, and power technologies, uh, you can contact Jack and I, and we can certainly send you a copy of it. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece. He also talks about iRobot, uh, you know, gutter cleaners. It's way more than gutter cleaners now. Uh, but we're going to pay bills and get right back with Jed Dorsheimer uh, on Hi-Fi Radio right after this. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? Life back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. Hi-Fi Radio. Yes, that request goes out to Jed Dorsheimer of Boston. Yeah, see, the Americans still request uh, Rush Jack. And so Jed Dorsheimer, of course, is an analyst with Canaccord. And he says, hey, guys, why don't you play some Red Bar Chat up for a second? Good for you. Didn't request Max Webster or uh, the Bare Naked Ladies. No, that'd be Rush. Cool song. Uh, so, yes, the song about a combustible motor vehicle. Jed, in going through your white page report, I was actually uh, stunned that the steam engine automobile back in the day about 100 years ago had a 40% market share the electric vehicle 100 years ago according to your work had a 40% market share and the ice vehicle ice yes internal combustion engine had a 20% market share how did the talk to us about the the the, the pivot the shift and in fact uh, the the success or failure of the steam engine uh, to to propel a vehicle it's quite fascinating yeah, I mean, so you have two things <clears throat> that really led to the advent uh, of the uh, internal combustible engine. Um, and a lo large part of this can be uh, attributed to Henry Ford and the development of the Model T. You know, the um, famous saying is you can have any color um, as long as it's black. Yep. And, uh, and so uh, moving to uh, low-cost and lean-based manufacturing methods, uh, was really taking the cost out of the equation and making it more affordable. So when you look at a Stanley Steamer, um, those were about $2,000. Um, and at that time, uh, it versus $750 for a Ford Model T. So, price, so the price did it, right? The price cutting. So yeah. So Efficient, two efficiencies. More affordable. Um, so what we did is, is we have, if you look at the automo uh, automotive industry, 
we made a very inefficient technology. Um, Isn't that funny? Uh, very uh, available yeah. to the mass market. Isn't that in other words, if they would have, t- if Henry Ford was interested in electric vehicles, he could have certainly reduced production costs by a similar amount by painting them all black, uh, and that would have then been the dominant car. Is that really what you're saying? You're you're simplifying a bit more than I am, but uh, uh, I'm saying you're that smarter than he, I am. I that's why him getting to a uh, to a much more affordable uh, uh, took a complex technology that could have been simplified, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, by going perhaps uh, with the EV. Um, and also, it's important to recognize that going back. You know, there was a role of Standard Oil, too. So you had the most powerful man in the U.S., arguably the richest in the world. You're speaking to Rockefellers? At that time. And, yeah, in turn, and and owning Standard Oil, and it just so happens that uh, automobiles are consuming uh, uh, probably, yeah, his oil. petroleum. Yeah. Right. So, um so I, I think there's uh, they weren't mutually exclusive, uh, in my opinion. Right. So, so part of your thesis, Jed, you, you talk about electric vehicles being 50% of production in 2030. Um, is part of this thesis that you're talking about with Henry Ford, because you're going to see cost parity in and around 2025, something like that, based on your report. Is that correct? Sorry, cost parity, Jack, with what? Between, between internal combustion engine and electric vehicles. Okay. Yes. So we get a crossover point. Um and I think that we've, we're, we're in that, we're, we've crossed the Rubicon from altruistic, you know, tree-hugging, I want to save the world. And, uh, by the way, I'm one of those. Like, I think that's good. That's not bad. And we're well, you're, you're a tree skier. A, you, you, you like to ski the trees, I bet, right? Yeah, we, we're moving into an economic-driven model. And so, uh, and that's one of the things you're seeing with the challenge. There's challenges associated with that. When challenges come, a lot of opportunities. And uh, um, uh, we think getting that to the, getting an affordable EV to the mass market, and you're seeing that happen. I mean, look at what Tesla's trying to do with the Model 3. Um, we've got over a dozen OEMs, traditional OEMs, with announcements of uh, uh, a lineup uh, introducing Full EV. In fact, there's a commercial that uh, Audi is uh, Audi is running that one third of all of their fleet will be um, uh, full electric by uh, 2025. Okay, so Jed, there's a billboard on the Gardner Expressway as I drive home. I see yeah. it. It's an Audi for the new. Is it called? What's it called? The e-tron. E-tron. Yeah. And so the billboard reads: "We didn't invent it. We only perfected it." Yeah. <laughs> We perfected that electric yeah. vehicle. Yeah. But it's a good point that Jed makes, though, that consumers will demand a product that's better. There's maybe 10% of consumers that will demand a product that's more environmentally friendly, but if you actually have a more efficient product uh, for the end user and it costs the same amount, that's where you actually have the technology uh, going in the mainstream where, where people demand it. You know, so the history of the electric vehicle is interesting, Jed, because again, you indicated, you taught me that 100 years ago we had electric cars. I can't believe they had battery power that would work 100 years ago to move a vehicle a kilometer, let alone several kilometers, but neither here nor there. Uh, a couple of factoids in your report. Number one, there's 130,000 gas stations in America. Number two, there are 10,000, roughly, electric charging stations in America. Speak briefly, if you don't mind, Jen, about 40 seconds, to the infrastructure build-out in America of electric charging stations. Where did it come from? 
So we're going to see. We're going to. I, I think we are going to see a, an explosion, and this is a greenfield opportunity in terms of businesses, franchises, uh, for example, uh, uh, to replicate what we are used to with the with the gas station. Um, and this is a huge opportunity. I would also argue that the. Um, I believe, and part of our thesis, and we can get into this later on if you want, but I believe that cars being shipped today are being shipped with oversized batteries, and uh, there are reasons for that to deal with the range anxiety that people have and fear is a function of not having the, uh, uh, the, the, the same number of charging stations and the opportunity to fill up. Yeah, but no, the point, sorry, did, did I, the, I mean, sorry to interrupt. The point I want to make with Volkswagen, did they have something to do with it? So Volkswagen, the diesel gate that Volkswagen uh, was responsible for and involved with, um, uh, they have had to invest billions of dollars into Charge America. So, so part of the settlement is to help proliferate uh, the charging infrastructure. Yeah. So again, so against that diesel scandal, which is a software scandal that Volkswagen has been charged with, uh, they're, they're, um, what's the part word? Of, part of the settlement part, was yeah. that they had to go out and build out the infrastructure for electric vehicles. Infrastructure, which they may never, ever be able to use or benefit from. Uh, anyways, more with Jed Dorsheimer, analyst. We're talking uh, autonomous driving. We're talking electrification of vehicles. Perhaps we're talking about the shared economy. We're talking about millennials uh, who are going to be the largest demographic in all time. We're going to talk about millennials as well and what they think about electric cars. Uh, it's all about the experience after all, Jack. More of it on Hi-Fi Radio right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. It is Hi-Fi Radio. I'm Wolfgang Klein, your host of the show about money. Yes, we're portfolio managers. Jack and I manage several hundred million dollars. If you need some help with your money, don't be shy to give us a call. A little selfless promotion there, Jack. Um, I am so delighted to have Jed Dorsheimer on the uh, line with us. He's a well, he's a wild guy. Uh, he's, he was born to be wild. Uh, he was bored in school, decided to head to the mountains and become a ski bum, which led him into competitive skiing, which got him a sales job at a car dealership. I love those jobs. I think all kids should work at a car dealership or a paper boy or uh, a restaurant. Restaurant's one of the tough ones. And yeah. it's very good. Uh, Kate did that as training. She, she, she highly recommends it. Fantastic. Any, any any kind of interaction skills that can be developed with people is fantastic. But Jed didn't stop there. No, no. Then he, uh, of course, from car dealership, more interested in cars, went back to school, got himself an analyst job, went back to school to Harvard because he's in Boston. That's what we do in Boston. Um, and here he is with his great big report on how electric cars are going to save the planet, change the world. Um, let's speak, if, if we may, uh, Jed, to the shared economy. Uh, again, as the world is pivoting, according to your work, rapidly towards electrification. And again, Rafi, one of our oil analysts uh, from Canoe. Well, we're going to have him on next week, and he's going to dispute a lot of these numbers. That's what makes a market, he doesn't so think mother, He doesn't think Mother, mother Earth can, can, can generate enough battery power with all the stuff that goes into these batteries. But you, you see otherwise, Jed. You think the Mother Earth can can pull out enough what cobalt and nickel and... A little graphite in there, I graphite. think. Graphite. So, so as we point out in the report, because we, we work with our... We've got a great um, base metals and mining team. I can't accord. Uh, yes, we do. That, we, uh, that we've included in this report. Yeah. Uh-huh. We do think that the base materials are going to be a problem. Yeah. 
And so, uh, so what our big hypothesis and where we're different from others uh, out there opining on the, uh, uh, the adoption of this is we think this, uh, uh, that you can skin the cat a few different ways. And I do see cobalt being a, a major challenge in terms of extraction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, Jed, just to stop you there, you say yeah. they're going to be a problem. They're going to be a problem because the demand is going to outstrip supply. So they're a problem for industry, for consumers, for investors. They're, they're a good opportunity because that's what you want. Right you want. You want a commodity that is in demand and in short supply. Well, there's lots of lithium. There's no problem with the lithium aspect, right? So... It's an economic issue for lithium. So, yep. so one of the things, if we're looking at how do we get to $100 per uh, kilowatt hour in terms of the cost of uh, uh, the battery technology, if you've got a $3 billion market for lithium roughly and it's going to be $20 billion to extract, then you're not going to have prices that are going to fall as fast. Correct. Which is a good opportunity to basically invest in that area, right? And so... Um, my argument is if we look at a Tesla Model S, that's a $100,000 car, just to use a rough number, mm-hmm. right? Let's call it a 30% margin on that. So it's a $70,000 bill of material that comes with 100 kilowatt uh, uh, per hour uh, battery pack on that. And so we know that $170, $180 per kilowatt hour right now, call it $170, $17,000 of a $70,000 bill of materials is your battery. It's the largest single cost component going into the vehicle. $17,000 for the battery in that car, right? Eh? Correct. Wow, that's a lot of dough. Just using rough numbers. Yeah, yeah right? sure, and sure. So, so if we kind of look at that, well, it, then, then it begs the question that we started asking is, do you need a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack? Right. And so I know you need more, don't you? Well, people don't care about what's going into it. They just want to know that, you know, that they're not going to be stuck on the side of the road. Right. And so part of the the lack of charging infrastructure and the fact that it's going to take 45 minutes on a fast charge to basically recharge that is why you're shipping a car with oversized battery packs. Uh So then how do we solve those problems differently? And so our thesis is that going to high voltage and changing the, uh, the voltage ethos within the architecture of the car, um, it allows you to get to a sub 10 minute charge time allow, and then you can proliferate charge points and you can cut that down. Let's say you go to 50 kilowatts. Well, I've just cut, you know, $10,000 out of my bomb and that's, you know, one way we think this can be affordable, even in spite of uh, pr- potential shortages of the base materials. Now, you're not saying bomb because those batteries blow up as you do with some, some laptops. No, right? Okay, materials. good. Jed, we're out of time, my man. Uh, brilliant, brilliant report. Brilliant discussion. Uh, I really, really can't thank you enough for educating Jack and I. Uh, you know, it's all about the future. Uh, that's what we do as investors. We are looking for, we're not accountants. Talking about the past, although the history, of course, very, very important. Jack, of course, is a student of history, which is very helpful for the cause as well. Uh, keep up that dynamic lifestyle. Jed, you're teaching your kids how to ski. Uh, arms in front, keep those knees bent. Don't forget that, eh? <laughs> Thanks. It was a pleasure to be on. I want to wish you guys all a great week, and thank you for tuning in to Hi-Fi Radio, a wonderful radio station on the Global News Radio Network, 640 in Toronto. 
been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.